he's on the run, <clears throat> and Saul is trying to kill him. On the run from Saul, David takes his stopover at Nob, where he uh, picks up supplies, and then he keeps on going until he gets to the town of Gath. Now, Gath is a Philistinian town. In fact, it was the hometown of Goliath, um, the Philistinian giant whom David killed back in chapter 17. And although it's probably still wrapped in cloth and out of sight, David is carrying Goliath's sword. So what was David thinking? Running to the hometown of his enemies. What was he thinking running to a Philistinian town? Well, I haven't the faintest idea. Desperate men do desperate things, I guess, and David is certainly desperate. Um, he may have believed uh, he may have believed that the city of Gath was the one place that Saul would never ever think to look for him, and I reckon he'd be right. He may have also have thought that in Gath no one would recognize him. But this stunt was desperately risky, and it went wrong. They did recognize him. Um, once there, the, the servants of the king recognize him and know straight away who he is, and they bring this matter to the attention of their king, the king of Gath, Achish. And they say, isn't this David, the king of the land? And um, actually, uh, just... By the way, that's a fairly extraordinary thing to say. It shows us that even the Philistines had heard the rumors about David's anointing by Samuel as king in place of Saul as Saul's substitute. It shows us that as Philistines also, it also shows us that deep down they knew that they were on land that God had given the Israelites. And it shows us that these servants, they believe in David in the sense of knowing that he is the Lord's Messiah, the, 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 the anointed one. Uh, they know he's the Messiah, but they don't believe in David in the sense of this being saving faith. They don't bow down and offer him their allegiance, even though they've just confessed that they are on his land and he is king. So there's knowledge and understanding, but no saving faith. What they're aware of is that David, to their king, is a twofold threat. He's king of Israel, their sworn enemies, and he is king of the land. And they know all about the songs that were sung and the dances that were danced after the death of Goliath. They know, these servants, they know that David is the most deadly warrior of their generation. Well, <clears throat> Akish, sorry, David, David took these words to heart and he was afraid. David realized that as soon as the penny dropped, as soon as Akish understood what his own servants were telling him, Akish would swiftly kill him. He needed to do something, and he needed to do something quickly in order to survive. And desperate men do desperate things, and the text tells us that he feigns insanity, making marks on the doors of the gate and dribbling on his beard. Uh, David is not acting demonized, uh, both 
Um, both Old and New Testaments make a distinction between mental illness and demonization. He is pretending to be, from our point of view, he is pretending to be perhaps either mentally ill, suffering perhaps from a psychotic episode, or alternatively, he is pretending to now have a severe intellectual impairment, such as perhaps uh, an acquired brain injury. Um, the point of the strategy, by the way, it's, it's important that we register this, the point of the strategy is not to find acceptance by way of being considered harmless, but rather the point of the strategy is to be rejected on the basis of being unacceptable. It's an outrageous strategy. Will he get away with it? Well, <clears throat> He's got good reason for believing that he will. I mean, subterfuge uh, and camouflage have always worked so well for David in the past, haven't they? I mean, Samuel the prophet himself, he needed the audible voice of God in order to be able to come out from amongst his brothers because, judging by his appearance, he was not in the running to be king. And when it came to defeating Goliath, David disguised himself as a harmless teenage boy, whereas in actual fact, he was a lethal teenage boy. And Goliath, expecting to see a warrior, didn't see. And then, uh, as we about three weeks ago, David and Michal used the simplest of optical illusions to fool the guards and make good David's escape from Gilbia. They put an idol in the bed, covered it with blankets and goat hair on the pillow. And the guards, when they showed the bed, they saw what they were told to see. See, David lying sick in bed. Only David wasn't in bed and he wasn't sick. So Akish, King Akish answered his servants, look at the man. And King Akish instructs his servants to use their eyes and to make a judgment based on what they see. And this is just in case we haven't quite yet got the point, this is the exact opposite of what this book is teaching us. Don't judge by appearances. Don't look at the man. Try to see what God sees and ask him if you need his help. He is insane, says King Akish. He has, he has seen what David wanted him to see. Is David deceiving Akish? Is this, is this another one of David's lies? Well, certainly David isn't insane. So David is presenting himself deceptively. But I think we ought to also see that Akish never questions David directly. He doesn't even think to do that. He just speaks to his servants, asking them three questions. Question one, why have you brought him to me? Question two, am I so short of madman that you have to bring this fellow here to carry on like this in front of me? And question three, must this man come into my house? And the three questions are, of course, meant rhetorically. It's one of those situations where you'd be a fool to answer. Because they meant rhetorically, and the servants would have been fools to have tried to answer the king, and the, the scene closes silently, because we know that the servants and David all immediately left the king's presence in disgrace. 
As, as it says um, in the subtitle that um, Rowan read to us at the beginning of the service, in the subtitle Psalm 34, when David was driven out, the strategy was successful. He left in disgrace, rejected, in order that he might good, make good his, mistake, his, his, his escape. Um, well, in life, um, you can't really ask a question without giving a lot away. And when Akish uh, asks three questions, he gives a lot away. What he gives, what he, what he shows the world, is his utter contempt for people who are mentally or intellectually uh, impaired or incompetent. How, how, this is what he's asking, how is this man useful to my administration? How is his presence going to value add? Why should I pay for his food and lodging? What can I get out of it? And this is what Akish intends by his last question. Why, this, why must this man come into my household? And, and what we see, what Akish gives away, is that Akish sees people as commodities. Human resources, so to speak. This one is welcome because he is an asset. This one is to be rejected because he's a liability. And one thing we may not appreciate, and it's the reason, I think, perhaps why Akish never stops to consider that David might be play-acting, he might be pretending. The reason, perhaps, is that what David is doing in his culture is deeply and profoundly humiliating. And David and Akish live in a world where people are their actions. And in an honor-shame culture... David is pretending to be the kind of person who'd occupied the lowest rung on the social ladder. I, I, my guess is that it would have been incomprehensible to Akish that anyone would willingly act that way. And I guess if we could interview him today and say, did you know that actually pulling the wool over your eyes is actually pretending, I, I think Akish would probably answer along the lines of, I still don't understand why David would have done that. I would have rather died honorably than to have acted in such a humiliating and dishonorable way. But what David is doing is David is discovering that there is power in weakness. Or to put that another way, there is a weakness in power. There is a weakness in worldly power. The, the one who can humble himself, the, 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 person, the person who can humiliate, the person who can humble themselves, the one who can sacrifice their pride and their ego and their dignity, that one can survive challenges that would otherwise destroy the arrogant and the proud. And as David made good his escape, he prayed a prayer of thanksgiving and worship. And that prayer has been preserved for us, and we know it as Psalm 34. And we've, we've prayed it already together this morning. And as Rowan read to us, the subtitle reads, Of David, when he pretended to be insane before Abimelech, who drove him away, and he left. Um, the fact that the subtitle seems to get Akish's name wrong, uh, that causes confusion. Why does it say Abimelech instead of Akish? Well, I don't know, of course, because I wasn't there when it was written. Um, however, um, the name Abimelech literally means 
my father is king. Abba, father. Abi, my father. Melech, king. Abimelech, my father is king. And there is good evidence to suggest that the name um, simply often meant prince or ruler. And so it might actually not be a name in the subtitle, but rather a title, a royal title. Uh, Just as I understand Queen Elizabeth I, she often referred to herself as a prince, even though actually she was a queen. Uh, She often referred to herself as a prince, and what she meant was, I am a ruler, the equal of any other prince of Europe, the equal of any other prince ruler of, of Europe. And so the subtitle refers to David, pretending to be insane before a ruler, the episode which we've read this morning from 1 Samuel. And the psalm begins with praise and worship, with thanksgiving, and it calls us to worship. Verse 3, glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. And then comes the substance of David's testimony. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Now, it's not obvious from 1 Samuel, but what we find out from this psalm is that all that time that David was pretending to be insane, dribbling and doodling, well, actually all that time he was feverishly praying to God. And the Lord heard him and the Lord helped him and he survived a situation that was going to be lethal sooner or later. And David coming out, having made good his escape, so profoundly touched and amazed by God's loving, saving grace and mercy, his kindness to him when his life was in danger. He wants others to know too. And in verses 8 and following, David, although he is praying, he speaks directly to us inviting us so that we too might taste and see that the Lord is good and that we might know that blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Um, David is praying and teaching theology simultaneously, which is wonderful. All good theology can be prayed. And David concludes by praying two lessons about what he's learnt, And those lessons are worth Marking and noting just as we pass by. Lesson one comes from verse 19. The righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. Um, I still struggle with it. Somehow or other, we are endlessly confused that the righteous have, have troubles. <laughs> now that I'm following Christ, surely that means my life's just going to go sailingly well. But no, um, David here, he assumes that the righteous have troubles. He offers no explanation of that. But what he does offer is consolation, the consolation that God will save us from all of our troubles. And this is, of course, profoundly comforting. Those, those who are right with Christ, those who believe in God's Christ, um, Those who are right with God, they may have many problems and challenges and difficulties in this life, but as long as we keep on trusting God and calling on him, he will be at work in and through every situation, redeeming things and saving us. That's lesson one. Lesson two comes in verse 21. Evil will slay the wicked. The foes of the righteous will be condemned. 
And verse 21 uh, actually says two apparently contradictory things at once. On the one hand, evil is self-defeating. That's really good to know. Whenever we see evil in the world, we can understand ultimately that's a self-defeating strategy. Akish defeated himself. He had his mortal enemy in his power and he let him slip through his fingers. He was defeated by his own proud and arrogant assumptions. Evil is self-defeating and so we can trust God with justice and not repay evil with evil but rather evil with good knowing that it's the Lord's job to judge and we don't need to take revenge into our hands. Evil is self-defeating. And yet, on the other hand, the foes of the righteous will be condemned. In other words, it's God who condemns evil and defeats it. Although evil is self-defeating, it is perhaps paradoxically also true that that is the judgment of God who defeats evil. And he reigns supreme. That's the second lesson. Um, In today's gospel reading... Mark chapter 3, the scene opens with Jesus welcoming a crowd and turning no one away. Um, These are people who are tasting and seeing that the Lord is good and that they're blessed as they take refuge in him. They won't be condemned. They won't be turned away. The huge crowd gathers inside the house and it looks chaotic. In fact, it is chaotic. Neither Jesus nor the disciples are even able to eat. Jesus' family, hearing of this, they accuse him of being insane. They think he's mad. And they come in order to take charge of him. The religious leaders of Jerusalem, uh, however, they don't accuse him of being insane. Rather, they accuse him of being demon-possessed. He's bad. All we need now is a psychologist to turn up and say, oh, he's not mad or bad, but rather sad. Jesus answers the accusation of the teachers of the law. He says, it's illogical to imagine that it is by some satanic power that I am driving out demons. If Satan's house is divided, his kingdom cannot stand. His end has come. And it's all very well for Jesus to say that and to be teaching that. But actually, the irony is that his own household is turning up and his own household is divided. They're turning up to take charge of him. Jesus' house is divided. And if his house is divided, his kingdom cannot stand. His end has come. This, in Mark chapter 3, is the close of Christ's short yet noteworthy public ministry if his mother and brothers have anything to do with it. How will Jesus deal with this challenge? Answer? By redefining who his family is. Jesus asked, Who who are my mother? And my brothers. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and my sister and my mother. Jesus redefines his family as those who sit listening to him, for this is God's will. 
Jesus is neither mad nor bad, but rather he is the Son of God, the one who can speak accurately, representing his Father in heaven. Um, I, I remember, um, as for myself, close to, close to 20 years ago, uh, I can remember talking to Phil Muston, who uh, many of you would remember. Phil Muston was the rector at that time of this church. And actually, back at 20 years ago, I was on staff here as a uh, two-day-a-week part-time lay pastor. And this is a few years before I went off to Bible college and was myself ordained. And um, Phil, he was a, just an excellent mentor and role model. And he had a wonderful ministry here at St. Barnabas. And a part of his ministry... Uh, that was really wonderful, was that during his time here, um, Phil had this great ministry with uh, homeless people, especially with homeless people who were mentally unwell or intellectually impaired. And Phil loved and welcomed people who'd known a lot of rejection in their lives, um, people who were uh, a little bit different. And this meant that we as a community, we were gradually accumulating more and more people who were a little bit different, or actually sometimes a lot bit different. And I remember saying to Phil uh, one day, um, after um, encountering yet another poor soul whose needs seemed to be overwhelming, and I said to Phil, and I quoted Kiyakish, and I said, Phil, are we so short of madmen? that you have to bring this fellow here to carry on like this in front of us. And um, Phil and I both laughed. Um, I was joking, and he knew I was joking. But actually, uh, I had at that time, I, I had been fooled by something. I had been fooled by seeing something that was there in order that I didn't see something that was there. And uh, if you have your pew Bibles open to page Two, three, two of First Samuel, you can see what I saw and you can see what I didn't see. Because what, the question is, what, um, what is at the end of the 15th verse of the 21st chapter of First Samuel on page 232? What do you get after the 15th verse? And actually what you get is a chapter break. That's what I saw. I saw a chapter break. And if you're anything like me, that means that you can stop reading now and come back to it tomorrow. What did the chapter break, which has no real authority for being there, chapter breaks weren't added into the biblical text until the 13th century AD, what did the chapter break, which I saw, what did that stop me from seeing? Well, actually, it stopped me from seeing what comes next. First Samuel 22 verse 1, David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Abdullam. When his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down there, uh, went down to him there. Verse 2, all those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him and he became their commander. About 400 men were with him. That's what I didn't see. Um, Akish rejected people who didn't fit in. David gathered them. Akish rejected people who he didn't consider to be useful. 
David gathered everyone. This is how verse 2 reads, literally, something like this in the Hebrew. Verse 2, And they gathered about him, everyone in distress, and everyone who was in debt to him, and everyone who was bitter of soul. And he was with them as commander, and they were with him as 400 men. There's a threefold description of the type of people who came to David. In addition to his family, who were obviously fleeing from the possibility of reprisals from, 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 from the tyrant King Saul, there are three types of people who come. Firstly, everyone who is in distress. People who, who are not happy. And perhaps especially people who are not happy because of Saul. Then secondly, the phrase, everyone who was in debt to him. That's likely to mean everyone who was in debt to someone. The phrase puts neither a positive nor a negative spin on these folk. Some of them, I'm sure, were running away from bad debts that were the result of irresponsibility or incompetence or both. But others, perhaps, were people who were genuine economic refugees. People whose lives had been rendered non-viable perhaps by rich people charging them interest on loans, which is a life-destroying thing to do in a subsistence agrarian economy. You just drive people into slavery if you do that. But what's interesting is that the phrase doesn't judge them, and neither did David. David, we can accurately presume, was a second-chance kind of a guy. The phrase could also mean perhaps everyone who was in debt to David. So the phrase could mean people who were in debt to David, um, for example, because he'd saved their lives on the battlefield. Not an economic or a monetary debt, but a moral one. People who were coming to David because they owed him their allegiance. People who were coming to David because, hey, David has saved me in the past. I'm putting faith in him that he's going to save me in the future. And they were right to do that because he's God's king. Such faith would have been well placed. And thirdly, and everyone who was bitter in soul. Again, a broad phrase, perhaps including discontents, malcontents, battlers, folk hard on their luck, people who'd been sucked in and spat out by the system, people who were perhaps a little bit different, people who were perhaps a lot bit different. David welcomed them. David was with them as leader, and they were with him as 400 men. Community. What did David see when these people came to him? What, did David, what David saw was he saw people as people, not as things that were either an asset or a liability. He, he saw, and I think we can be very confident of this, he saw every human being who came to him as a gift. For every human being who came to him, David knew, was created in the image of God and therefore of infinite worth, irrespective of their competencies or capabilities. David received with thanksgiving the people God gave him. He welcomed everyone. Well, David is the type, Jesus is the anti-type. In other words, David was like that because he was like Jesus to whom 
he pointed. The fulfillment is in Jesus, the Christ. Messiahs, Messiahs and their messianic communities ought to be places of radical acceptance and love because they are communities where every human being, all human beings are loved and accepted on the basis of being human beings. Even if, perhaps especially if, they are a little bit different. Uh, John Yates, uh, Phil Muston, and Adam Lamb, um, the three rectors here prior to me, three very different men, but all of them demonstrated in their ministries a great love and acceptance of and inclusion of people who were a little bit different, and on occasions people who were a lot bit different. And I guess by way of their influence and mentorship upon me, I now am convinced that one indicator of the spiritual health of any Christian community, big or small, is the relative abundance of people who would otherwise struggle to fit in for one reason or another. Although this text is not directly saying, hey, be like David, not like Akish, we would do well to be like David, in this regard, and not like Akish. The text makes a fool out of Akish. He was so sure of what he saw that he didn't see a ruse. He didn't see a, a pretty pathetic um, attempted escape. He thought he saw a fool, but actually he was the fool and he couldn't see it. That's why David's pathetic strategy worked. Our episode ends with David going off to the king of Moab, a neighboring country to the southeast. And he arranges for the king of Moab to accommodate his parents and brothers until the situation stabilizes. And now, at last, things look okay for David. Family safe, David secure in a stronghold in a cave in Moab, a different country. But then, finally, the scene ends with the appearance of a prophet named Gad, it is extremely encouraging to see that David obeys the prophet without back chat or questioning. That's just this wonderful, wonderfully positive sign. But the message is a hard one. The prophet's message from God for David is that he is to leave his safe place and go back to the land of vulnerability. And so... David leaves a cave in order to live in a forest back in the land of Judah. God has work for him to do there. And there's no ministry without vulnerability. Or to put that another way, the only safe place for God's people is where God wants you to be doing what God wants you to be doing. And trusting in him for both protection and provision. Well, the list of characters in this week's drama have included David, the king of Akish in Gath, sorry, the, uh, Akish, the king of Gath, and his servants. We've also uh, had in the drama various misfits, malcontents, people with a poor credit rating. And then lastly, the king of Moab, the family of David, and the prophet Gad. But the hero of this story is God. The Lord will rescue his servants, 
no one who takes refuge in him will be condemned. The Lord is with you. 